So tonight's class is about cancel culture. Some of you are familiar with the phrase, some of you are unfamiliar with the phrase. So we're gonna to try to define a little bit about what it means, and then we're gonna look at a sort of a, uh, a course lesson in terms of what the, the Torah describes in pretty graphic details in terms of the rabbinic tradition about what the very first cancel culture is. And then we'll go from there to see what we can do about that today and how we could combat that, at least in our own personal lives. So what prompted this class has been my personal dismay at the direction that society is traveling on. Society is rapidly becoming a place in which those who don't hold your values dear need to be punished for their beliefs. And, and to be honest, this is true on both sides. This is not endemic to one side of, of the political aisle or the other. In general, this tribalism is, is a dangerous thing. And the specific uh, manifestation of this tribalism in this cancel culture is what we want to discuss tonight. The immediate, like, toxic reaction to anyone who is not espousing the same value system as our side is espousing and the need to destroy the individual is antithetical to everything that Judaism represents for a variety of reasons. We'll see tonight that this, we'll see tonight that this question is really addressed at some length by the Nitziv. Now the Nitziv is a very famous Torah scholar his name was Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. He lived from 1816 to 1893. He was a Belarusian rabbi, and he was head of the world-famous yeshiva in Volozhin that was closed by the, the, um, the Russian government, uh, started passing rules about how much secular studies they could learn, and they said that they have to spend up at least six hours a day in secular studies and maximum of 10 hours a day of study. And then he actually closed the yeshiva in 1892. This was the first modern day yeshiva. It was started by Chaim Velazhin in the early 1800s. So we're gonna see he's in, he features prominently in our source sheet. Okay, let's first define what cancel culture is and then we can start analyzing it on a deeper level. So I did some searching for a coherent definition, but I wasn't so successful in finding like, how do we define it? So for the purpose of our conversation tonight, we will define cancel culture as the movement to delegitimize those who deviate or seem to deviate from a set of moral, political, or social beliefs. That's a very broad definition, I understand. So to, to narrow it down a little bit, let's discuss. This can consist of outing them on social media to create enough of a stir and negative attention to someone oftentimes previously unknown and not a public figure at all to cause them to lose their job by dint of the negative attention being brought to bear on them and extend as far as to tar and feather all those who have any connection with this individual to amplify the social ostracism of the people holding these uh, dilatorious, I guess, uh, belief system, okay? I think that's, that's a, a decent way to define what cancel culture is. Now, up until now, we have been discussing when people are expressing themselves currently and then being punished for their beliefs on, on, uh, you know, on social media. Another particularly upsetting aspect has been the, those actively searching out people's social media history for statements that they made in the past, sometimes 10 years ago, and outing these statements to try to get them punished for their uh, belief system. 
Now, in truth, this is not a new idea. This has been a hallmark of totalitarianism throughout history. Okay? Certainly in, in, in the communist countries over the past hundred years, this is something that they have been very, very careful to, to have thought police, right? As, as Orwell predicted and, and as was borne out. Now, going back further in world history than some of the contemporary and the recent events, we have the famous example of Socrates. He died for his willingness to challenge the status quo. To ask, do society's goals really make sense? Or is there hypocrisy in ancient Athens? And for this, he was punished by death. Okay, so that, that's essentially the question that we're gonna deal with tonight is the, the issues of the, the issues of, um, of cancel culture. Before we go any further, we're about to split up into small groups. Does anybody have any questions that they feel they need to uh, resolve before we go any further? Uh, I'm sorry I came in late. So did you define the cancel culture before we started? What aspect of it, which definition we're going to use? Yes, I, I did. Uh, it was my own definition just because I couldn't find a, a really great, clear uh, definition on anywhere online. Um, so the way we defined it is the movement to delegitimize those who deviate or seem to deviate from a set of moral, political, or social beliefs. That's the, the loose definition of what cancel culture is. And we're, we're going to be looking at the, the sources that I shared and trying to, and trying to get to the, the bottom of what the Torah's perspective on this is. Okay. Why did you select this uh, topic? I mean, this name, sorry, the name. What, cancel culture? Yeah. Because it's pretty topical. It's pretty... Um, something that is pretty uh, prevalent today. And uh, not everyone is, is political, I recognize that, but for many people who are political, this is something that they, they hear about and see and, and read about in, in, in many different sources. And it's something that probably bothers them. And like, like most topics, there is wisdom to be mined by looking in the Torah. And, and I think it's important to share that wisdom. Before we begin, though, uh, what um, if anybody wants to offer their uh, summation of their individual room's conclusions, if anybody's interested in doing that? I don't know if we have concluded, if we concluded anything. That's the right answer. The right answer is we are left <laughs> with more questions than answers. That, that's always what we're striving for <laughs> in life. But if anybody... Well, I, I can't necessarily speak for everybody else in the room, mm -hmm. but I, I, you know, I thought and maybe it was... Uh, over, over, overly pushing uh, the agenda that basically said that there's there is a progression, and of of thought and restriction, and that for us as Jews the the difficulty is in figuring out where to draw the line in that progression. Exactly, exactly. That's what I was hoping that the conclusion from those sources that we have in front of us. I was hoping that that would be everyone else's conclusion as well. So let's let's sum up. Okay, so. I think we can all agree that theoretically there are certain beliefs that would be objectionable enough and perhaps downright dangerous enough that we would want to use the power of societal pressures to help engineer the mitigation or the elimination even of these beliefs, right? Where we draw that line is going to be difficult, right? I think many of the groups probably got into this topic of, you know, well, if someone's anti-Semitic, if someone is espousing, you know, um, uh, support for Hitler, at what point do we say that's not okay? 
Now, to be clear, we aren't discussing the First Amendment. What kind of speech is legally protected? What kind of speech isn't legally protected? We are not engaging in that at all today. What we are discussing is what kind of speech should be deemed unacceptable by society and what steps would be acceptable to help ensure that this belief doesn't spread. Now, once we establish that there can be certain beliefs that are so morally repugnant as to render it necessary to eradicate it from societal commerce, okay, we can reach a level of, you know, perhaps everyone can agree about a specific mindset, right? You know, if, if someone is getting up in public and, and, and publicly advocating for pedophilia and saying that this is a, a benefit for the, for the children to have uh, people, you know, pedophiles abuse them, right? I think everyone can say that's someone who we don't want to be have part of our society. This is not a belief that we want in our society. I think everyone can agree to that. And we can understand that this is a very powerful tool tool, especially in this age of, of social media, where you can amplify the objections very quickly. That's a very powerful tool. And I think the question really gets to, where is this line drawn? And that's where it gets very tricky. So I hope everyone got up to source number three. Uh, did everyone get up to source number three, each group? We did on number one, number one. You did, did or did not? We did, we did. You did, okay. Group number two, anybody wanna? We did group, uh, we did uh, the third songs. Okay, so to, to sum up quickly what, what he says. So, so the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, he describes the dystopian era of the Tower of Babel. And the path begins by demanding, as Bruce pointed out, based on a social contract, we all belong to. It's a specific level of agreement in speech and thought. And that's where it begins. But it can end with society exterminating any dissenter by throwing them into the furnace. The very furnace which builds the bricks that they're using to build their tower, which in their eyes are more significant than the value of a human. Now, how does somebody get to a point in time which you think that a brick is more valuable than a human? That when a brick falls, you cry, and when a human falls, ah, no big deal, another human will take its place. How do you reach that level? You reach that level by rendering, completely stripping each individual of their individuality, by stripping them of their uniqueness, by stripping them of who they are and who they are created in the likeness of, which is in the likeness of God, by stripping them of their very divinity. In truth, we find Midrashim speaking about Hashem. And interestingly enough, you know how we describe Hashem? What we describe is Hashem is a molder. He takes one human and he creates another human in the same mold. But fascinatingly enough, when Hashem does so, the second human does not look the same as the first human. However, when someone is creating bricks, when you build a, a mold for a brick, you know what happens when you build a second brick? It looks exactly the same as the first one. And the third brick, the same as the second brick. But when Hashem does this, it's completely different. What's the eternal message that we're trying to impart? No two humans are the same. All bricks are exactly the same. But when you lose the inherent value of each individual human by trying to create this one mindset, you come to overvalue a brick and devalue a human. Right? I think if we can sum up what our sources that we're dealing with is that that is the message that they are finding in the Torah recording for us the story of the Tower of Babel. Specifically then, 
is when God responds by highlighting the differences between humans by separating us into 70 languages and 70 nations so that we all have our own unique path to travel. Did anybody have a different interpretation of what we've been dealing with until now, or is that basically how the groups came out? To agree, you don't have to. I didn't have that that theory. Okay, what was what did you come up with, Yao? I thought that that uh, God was trying to prevent human beings from becoming immortal. Their their goal was not a reasonable goal. They were trying to become larger than life, larger than what they are, and they they were going on the wrong track. But he said that. Well, we didn't read the Hebrew, unfortunately, but he said there was one line that said, if they all get together with one language, there's no limit to what they can achieve. So I'm going to separate their languages. So I don't know what, what it really said because we didn't read the Hebrew. Okay, so to be clear, what I, I don't mean to say from the actual Hebrew of the Torah portion in Genesis, because the Torah portion in Genesis does not give us that much information. It's somewhat ambiguous. What I mean to say is that when we look at it in the lens of the rabbinic literature, through the eyes of the Midrash in the Pirkei de Rebeliezer, and through the eyes of the Ha'emek Davar, who is coming to explain the Pirkei de Rebeliezer, then this is the message that they're trying to give over. And this is the message that they derive from this story. Now, one of the most pernicious aspects of the theology of today, cancel culture theology. Now, why do I call it theology? It does have very similar aspects to a religion, right? And that's why I call it a theology, because religion is theology. The, the inability, the dogma, the inability to dispute the charges, when you're trying to question why a certain belief is currently unacceptable, the response to that is the fact that you don't understand why it's unacceptable, it shows that you're even more irredeemable. The similarities to the Salem witch trials are inescapable, right? It, it, your inability to admit your guilt renders you more guilty. That's where we are at today in society. Now, this inability to articulate using traditional Western standards of logic, what the issues are with the specific statements, make it easier and easier to decide whether statements which have been made by our enemies are grounds for canceling them. Well, if the bar is very low, the bar is, well, it's just wrong. And if you don't recognize that it's wrong, you're even more in trouble. Well, that's a very easy way to say, just get out of here. We don't want to talk to you anymore. When you're having a debate, the inability to see the other side's point, the need to destroy them for arguing is completely antithetical to Western schools of thought. And particularly when it comes to Judaism. In Judaism, what we say in the chapters of our fathers, Ein habayshan lo What does that mean? That means the shy person will not actually learn. That means that you have to question every single thing that you are taught, you question it. There is no such thing as a bad question in Judaism. So but to you say, have to follow the rabbi. That's a different point. But to say that you cannot question authority, and if you question authority, automatically you're canceled, that is completely antithetical. You always have to question. You always have to understand what's happening on a personal level, okay? This idea of saying that, do we try to recognize what the other side is thinking and then try to negate it? 
or do we say automatically negation? Do we actually give them some humanity? This is something that, interestingly enough, I give a Dafyomi shir every day. In the Dafyomi, we learn one daf of Gemara every day. There are 2,700 plus dafim of Gemara. It takes about seven and a half years to finish the entire Talmud. Yesterday's daf discusses the dispute between the students of Hillel and the students of Shammai. And this dispute is comprehensive, it's global, it's across the entire Talmud. And what we find is that the halacha always follows the opinion of Beis Shammai and not the opinion of Beit Hillel. I'm sorry, Beit Hillel and not Beit Hillel, not Beit Shammai. And the Talmud discusses in yesterday's Dafiomi, why do we follow Beit Hillel and not Beit Shammai? And what the Talmud explains is like this. What Beit Hillel does is Beit Hillel was not as smart as Beit Shammai. Beit Shammai, people were brighter. They were, if we were going to be elitist, then we would say Beit Shammai, we should follow them because they're smarter. But what Beit Hillel did is when they would try to establish their credibility and try to explain their side, they would first explain Beit Shammai's side. After explaining Beit Shammai's side, they would then explain their opinion. The Talmud says it's that exact quality of looking deeply into what the other individual is saying that causes us to follow their opinion. When you read the Dafyomi, probably about once a month or perhaps more often, you find there are two individuals who are at loggerheads with each other in a specific Talmudic passage. And you'll have someone else will ask a question. Abaya makes no sense. And you know who's going to come to explain the position of Abaya? Rava, who disagrees with Abaya and thinks Abaya is wrong. But you know what he does? He explains what Abaya's thought process was. That is so different to what we have today. We have this need today, if someone argues with you, destroy them. Use the power of social media and knock them out of society. But in, in Judaism, that's not what it's about. What's the difference? They recognize that there's a common goal of getting closer to understanding the truth, to understanding the Torah. And if that's the common goal, then I'm not trying to win or lose. That's not the point over here. Did I win or did I lose because I was judged to be the correct opinion in the debate? I didn't win or lose. The Torah won. The Torah lost. Right? But the problem is that we make it personal. And when we take away the humanity of the individual, by eliminating them from society, this is a terrible issue that we're having today. As Jewish people, we've been persecuted for our belief system throughout the ages, right? There hasn't been too many times in which we have not been persecuted. And looking around, I see quite a few friends from the former Soviet Union who are quite familiar with this persecution. I think we have to be especially careful when we see a trend to ostracize those who aren't on the right side of history. Now, on the other hand, what are the consequences for certain universally held morally repugnant statements? Let's say someone is publicly espousing that all Jews are termites, right? As, as Louis Farrakhan does. That women aren't equal to men. That black people are inferior to white people. What, what should be the consequences, right? I don't have all the answers, but I think we have to be very careful how fast we are to cancel people. And I think there's two critical distinctions that have to be drawn. Is this a private individual who has no influence on public discourse? 
number one. Number two, even if it is a public individual with a platform, is this a privately held belief or something that they are publicly advocating for? If the answer to question one or two is yes, I don't think there's any need to make a fuss about it. A friend of mine actually asked me to sign a petition. There was a girl in University of Pennsylvania who was at a party and she had a swastika on her shoulder. And he asked me to sign a petition saying that she should, uh, you know, that the uh, University of Pennsylvania should kick her out for having this swastika on her shoulder. And to me, this was a problematic idea. I don't know who this girl is. I don't know anything about her. She's not a public personality. Why do we need to cancel her for this idea? Right? Just to, and, forgive me, Rabbi, for interrupting you, but just to clarify. So if it's a private, if it's a private position, you have no problem with whatever it is, pretty much. I mean, it doesn't really matter. That's what you're I, saying. I, basically, yeah. I, I don't think it's necessary for us to try to eliminate people for their, their privately held beliefs. Now, do, am I saying it's the right thing? No, no. I don't think it's right for someone to have a swastika on them. I'm not justifying her behavior. What I'm saying is that there's a danger that we fall into by trying to determine the specific privately held beliefs of society. And that danger is a very, very scary danger. And that danger is something that if you read Orwell's writings, right? And if you read the, what the Nitziv had to say about tonight, you see the issues with this societal danger. So while it's important to ensure that publicly discourse does not go in a specific direction, that's important. But when you have to talk about a private picture that someone put up, I don't think that it's necessary to, to make that statement. I think it's leading us into a path of trying to ensure a certain uniformity of thought. And that uniformity of thought is not necessarily good for Judaism, right? We always go against the tide, right? <laughs> we, we rarely go with what everyone else is doing. That's not what we are. We are a, a stiff-necked nation, as the Torah describes us, right? So, so we stand up against what society is saying if we believe that what we're saying is right. Rabbi, Anybody else? Go ahead. That particular incident you, uh, that you raised, I think I'm familiar with it. Uh, this was a University of Pennsylvania student, but the picture was taken when she was 16 years old at some sort of a teen party. And I'm not even sure, they may have, it may have been a Halloween party for I don't know. That was obviously reprehensible. And when, it was, when she was informed of what it all meant, like two years later, she was very apologetic and very remorseful for it. So they have her, in that case, when, when, if you will, she's atoned to be kicked out of college because of some uh, immature childhood mistake. Seems a little difficult. Correct, correct. correct. And, and, and that's where I'm coming from as well. Does anyone else have any more uh, questions or statements that they want to make before we go further? Yes. Rabbi, I, I'd like to respectfully disagree. This is Leora. Um, okay. I, I feel that uh, there is no private uh, presentation anymore in the world that we live in because everybody has a very large bullhorn and that it could become very dangerous if we're not quickly aware of the people who are hate-filled and potentially could cause uh, uh, fatal even uh, repercussions to their speech or suggestions or actions. So, so here's where I, I would say that perhaps you're right and perhaps you're wrong. I, I just find it hard to define. You said some very powerful words over here, that these are ideas that, that if, if put into the public discourse, they can be fatal, right? That, now, can we define that clearly? In other words, I think it's important to sort of say, well, 
I'm making a statement here that the words that this individual are saying could potentially, words are violence, right? That, that's the statement essentially that we're making. I think, I think it's important to back that up because I think if we don't back that up, then if society makes a decision writ large, let's say, God forbid, right? A hundred years from now, everybody decides, you know what? Looking back to world history, many of the wars that have been caused have been caused due to religion. So, you know, we're outlawing religion. And as far as society is concerned, religion is fatal to society. Well, what's going to be our reaction to that? In other words, who That's gets- what they did in uh, Russia, right? In the Soviet Union. Correct. Now, who gets to decide what the, the definition of fatal is? Who gets to decide that? Is that, is that a de- democratic process? And is, is democracy... So, so to explain better, there are people who um, publish uh, incitement to hate and violence and publish the means by which someone might act upon this and the location where the people may be found. Um, I, I don't know what specifically you're referring to here. I think there, like I said, I, I don't think it's easy to define this. I think if someone is has an agenda, if someone has a website, and in which they're publishing information that, that can lead to that, then perhaps it is something that society should punish. My point is, as Chuck was pointing out, this individual was a 16-year-old girl at some Halloween party, and someone took a picture of her with a swastika on her shoulder. Do I think that that's the right kind of behavior? Do I condone that behavior? Absolutely not. I, I my my uh, Both of my grandfathers lost their entire families in, in World War II to, to the Nazis. So of course I don't condone that behavior. But do I think that a 16-year-old should no longer be able to progress in society because she one time had a swastika on her shoulder? I don't think that's right either. So yes, I don't think there's any sort of influence on the public discourse. I don't think there's any reason to, to cancel her. Yael, yeah? I have a question to, for the group and for you right now. Um, the woman who was in Central Park and the man who was very assertive in telling her to put her dog on a leash and she was obviously afraid and called the police and described him as an african-american man so she lost her job um i have a question about that myself ethically how could she have described him in a way that they didn't think was racial profiling because when the police come to someone, they say, describe the person. Were they Hispanic, the person who did, who you're looking for? So I just have a question for the group, if they feel that that was in the category of the pedophilia, or if that was in a category of something else. Right. Uh, I, I, I actually, uh, I referenced that incident too in, in our group. Um, the problem I think here is that Given today's society, and, and this is difficult, they were in a public setting, but, but, but you know, she could have a- actually gotten the guy killed and he was, he was doing no more than, you know, watching birds in the park. Um, and and the, part of the problem is that in an ideal world, you know, uh, if, you know, she, if she reacted like that or, or put him in, in mortal danger, then yeah, she should have, uh, you know, she, he, he should have sued her or, you know, she should have paid somehow. Uh, the problem is that that just doesn't happen in today's world and we're left with a whole lot of imperfect things going on and a lot of, um, a lot of baggage. 
you know, the, the, and the problem is that, yeah, you, you've got a, you know, you've got a black guy in the park and you've got a woman who's, who's basically reacting hysterically and the police do have a track record of reacting violently. And, and she did actually put him in mortal danger. And we need to step back and think about what the possible consequences are. I think that's a legitimate point. I think it's important to also recognize that the idea of saying that he was put into mortal danger by the woman calling the cops and saying that he's a black man who's threatening me. I think it's important to look at data when we look at that kind of information. And to say that a woman calling the cops about a black individual who is threatening her dog, I, I think it's hard to say that he's really, life is in mortal danger. I think I think it's important to sort of try to figure out, well, what are the odds, right? So, so when you look at that kind of numbers, I think it's important to recognize what the odds are that his life would actually be in mortal danger. Um, but I, I hear what both of you are saying. I, th I think that, I, and I think this is where we're getting to is, is the gray area about exactly what we do with these types of scenarios. What should our reaction be? Leo, go ahead. I think another, this is a very good point, uh, both from perspective of the black guy being in danger and also from looking at the data actually being very, data-driven in this analysis. Um, I would just add that we need to analyze her experiences as well. Like, did she have a traumatic experience early in her childhood? Did she grow up in, you know, particular, or maybe she was just, you know, panicking and, you know, was completely uh, unaware of trying to cause a problem. She was just, you know, scared and that's what her reaction was. So I think firing her from the job uh, could have gone too far if it was not done with proper analysis of what caused it. If it was right. malicious, if she was causing, if she was trying to cause, if she was trying to get him into trouble by stating that he's uh, uh, black, then that is, should be a punishable event. But if she was just in a panic and she was afraid and she had previous history, then I don't think she should have lost the job. We right. need to know more data. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, th I think this is a very important point that, that Leo's bringing up. And I think, to be honest, I think when when you have reasonable people, we, we can disagree, right? And, and we can we can say, you know, Baruch and Laura have one opinion, and Yael and Leo have a little bit of a different opinion. But does that mean to say that they can no longer associate with each other? No, no way, right? Because that, that's essentially the crux of what we're dealing with today, right? Is if you disagree in some of these hot button issues, there's almost like we can't associate with each other anymore. I saw something on Shabbat, a fascinating idea um, in, the, in a magazine. And what it, it mentioned is Peter Beinart. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Peter Beinart. He's a very left-wing uh, Jewish-Israeli journalist who is a very strong advocate for Palestinian rights. Uh, ben Shapiro, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Ben Shapiro, who is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. He's an Orthodox Jew from, from uh, LA, Los Angeles, and he is very, very right-wing about all of his beliefs. Now, there's one thing that they both share in common, and you know what that is? They both have a certain app on their phone. What app is that? That is the app that is called All Daf. What is All Daf? All Daf is a Daf Yomi app that is put out by the OU. So both of these two individuals, one of them is an Orthodox Jew, one of them is a Reformed Jew, I think, and they have very different belief systems, but they both share this, this adherence or sort of interest in learning more about the Talmud. And, and I think what's important to do is to look for the things that we share as opposed to the things that divide us. And I think it's very important in today's politics. What was that? 
No, that is fascinating. That's, uh, <laughs> That's pretty interesting. I, I yeah. Actually, uh, this is sort of a good leeway. I wanted to ask you a question. So, you know, here we are uh, uh, sort of uh, tying, ref in our discussion, we are making references ultimately to the Torah, right? Uh, sometimes right. directly, sometimes through several levels of indirection. Uh, but what happens when you have multiple religions living side by side, right? Uh, essentially at some points these religions disagree um, and you know you're lucky if uh, at least uh, you know both are Abrahamic monotheistic religions uh, that makes some things a little simpler uh, but like essentially what if you the two opposing parties go all the way down to their respective first principles where they disagree right uh, how do you resolve those yeah, so if, I knew the, if I knew the answer to that, then there would be peace in the Middle East, right? So, so, so that's, not, that's, not, that's not what we're trying to answer over here today. I, I think that's a, it's a very difficult question. And I, 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 I think in many ways, uh, this is, uh, might be what uh, is grappling America uh, right now. It's sort of, it, it's a very young nation uh, that got overrun by people coming from all sorts of different cultures. And I think America in many ways has diluted sort of its crux so it's trying to find like where it is with all these uh you know traditions pulling it in different directions right right now i hear you you know i mean to me i mean i still keep going back to the dot of of the hillel and shemaya i think it's a matter of the approach it's a matter of did you actually listen can you actually come back and state what it is before you state where you are without wiping out the person that you disagree with. And I think to me, that's sort of the essence. But if you're going to listen to them and then basically diss the person as opposed to the arguing the idea that you disagree with, there's, that's wiping it out. And that's going back to the cancel culture. You're canceling out the person as opposed to engaging in a debate over the ideology. Correct, correct. And, and if I could follow up from there, so, so let, let's uh, try to finish up with what we're saying over here. There's a famous story with Rebbe Meir. Rebbe Meir is considered to be one of the greatest Talmudic, uh, not Talmudic, Mishnaic sages. His name is Meir. His name is not actually Meir. Meir means to give light. His name was not actually Meir. His name was Rabbi Nahroi or perhaps um, Rabbi Eliezer. And the reason why he was called Meir is because he was so brilliant beyond head and shoulders above everyone else that he brought light to everyone else. And he was married to a woman named Bruria. And Bruria was even more brilliant than him, perhaps. And Bruria one time heard Rabbi Meir praying. And he was praying that the sinners who were causing him trouble, right, perhaps early Christians, were causing him trouble, that they should die. And Bruria says to him, does God want the sinners to die? God doesn't want the sinners to die. God wants the sins to die, but not the sinners, right? It's an incredibly important point in Judaism. We don't argue with the individual, we argue with the individual's thoughts, which leads us to our next point. Many people wonder, well, isn't cancel culture just sort of an extension of cheyrim? What's cheyrim? Cheyrim is the excommunication. Cheyrim is the idea in Judaism that individuals who harbor beliefs that are considered to be heresy are excommunicated to bring them back. Now, the difference is very, very clear. 
And the Talmud makes this clear in multiple places, specifically in the story of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva in Baba Metziah 59b. We're not going to get into it right now. We're running out of time. But the Talmud makes it clear that the process of excommunication is a process of rehabilitation. It is not punishment. It is rehabilitation. The difference that we see today in society is it is punishing the individual and expelling them from society as opposed to a method of rehabilitating them into society, right? It's a very critical point that we have to recognize, which leads us to our last point. Humans are not perfect, right? We are not, uh, we're not Christians. We don't believe in the original sin that we have no hope of, of succeeding over the Yetzirah, over the evil inclination. However, we are not perfect. As the Pope tells us, and not, not the Catholic Pope, but Alexander Pope, right, the English writer, perhaps the second most quoted writer in English after Shakespeare. The continuation of that statement is, to forgive is divine. King Solomon teaches us in Ecclesiastes, there has been no righteous man in the land who never sins. In other words, who do recognize people make mistakes? The question is, what do you do when you make that mistake? We believe this to be true. When we forgive others for their offenses, then Hashem forgives us for our offenses. Currently, we very recently, on Friday, we started the month of Elul, the Hebrew month of Elul. Elul begins the 40 days before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We start modifying our behavior as part of the Teshuvah process, as part of the repentance process. When do we start? We begin on the first day of Elul. Why do we begin now? So we have a paradigm. The paradigm is from Moshe. So Moses gets forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf in the desert 40 days before the Day of Atonement. He starts the process of getting forgiveness for the Jewish people. Right? So that starts in Elul. And that's what we believe is that you can modify your behavior. So it's a critical, critical point. When you cancel an individual, when you take the Karens of the world and you take them out of society, you make them persona non grata. And they can no longer be part of society. That is completely antithetical to Judaism, where we believe people fall and then they get back up again. We find there are ayin panim la Torah, which means there are 70 faces to the Torah. There are 70 different explanations for everything in the Torah. That means that I will say one explanation, Yael will say another, Marina will say another, Chuck will say another, and we can all be right. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are 12 tribes. Each has their very own way of serving Hashem, of serving God. There is a harmony in this divergent path that when we all work together, but we have our own divergent paths, that is true harmony. To me personally, the main takeaways from our class today is number one, the value and even divinity of every human life. The prescient words of the sages as elaborated by the Nitziv, and rehabilitation as opposed to destruction, a message that is crucial for all of us to recognize as we get closer to Yom Kippur, to the Day of Atonement. And we ask ourselves, what did we do in the past year that we want to sort of take out of our, our pantheon of behavior, right? And what did we do that we are okay with? What did we do that we want to eliminate? It's important to recognize we are looking to make ourselves to better people. We are not looking to destroy ourselves. We are not looking to destroy individuals. We are looking to help everyone make themselves to better people.
You have an individual, as Chuck pointed out, a 16-year-old girl who has a swastika on her shoulder. Wouldn't it be more beneficial to society at large to sort of contact her and say, would you be interested in doing a tour of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and understanding more about what that symbol means? Wouldn't that be more helpful than ensuring that she gets kicked out of Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, sorry, University of Pennsylvania, and is kicked out of college? That's not going to help. She's not going to have a, a fond relationship with Jews after that. The question is, what are we trying to accomplish? Do we have a strong desire to understand the other individual on the other side of us? to get to the truth of the matter, to get to the bottom line of the matter? Or do we have a desire to win the argument and to completely uh, immolate those who are on the other side of us? And I think that's really going to help us figure out what we're trying to do in life. I think it's important to recognize that. And, and when people sometimes begin with the what abouts, right? What about means when, uh, well, you're not into cancer culture, but the other side is. Just because the other side is doing something I go back to what I tell my kids. My kids are fighting with each other, which happens occasionally, even though today they, uh, they gave my wife a present. Her pre the present was that she has one day a year that she can choose. There's no fighting at all. So today there is no fighting at all. They, she cashed her uh, certificate. Uh, that being said, when the kids are fighting with each other and, and I come out and I see that they're fighting, what's going on over here? Who's fighting? Well, I, I hit her, but it's true, but she hit me first. That's not relevant, right? Who hit you first is not really relevant. So the what about of saying, well, the other side engages in this behavior, therefore we should engage in the behavior, that's not the right thing to do. That's just not, that's not the way that we live. It's not the way we live as Jews. It's not the way we live as, as decent people, right? We try to strive to be the best that we can be. And to be the best that we can be does not mean sinking to these levels. We have to recognize the divinity in each individual. We have to recognize that there could be truths in what they're saying, even if they're wrong overall. But that doesn't mean that they have to be canceled. Once again, I'm not saying that there aren't behaviors that are beyond the pale and that society is indeed correct to sort of cancel that individual. But it's a very powerful tool. And like all powerful tools, like a nuclear weapon, should not be used unless we are certain that the, the result is going to be the result that we are looking for and will not have collateral damage as well. Okay, uh, that, that's what I wanted to share with you guys tonight. If anybody has anything that they want to offer, happy to hear. Yes, you go. Great. You're welcome. Another question. One at a time, sorry. Is Israela, I think you were first. Yeah, I just was wondering, with cherem, how is it used to rehabilitate, and is it different from karet? Yeah, sorry. So I, I guess I should explain more, but we were running out of time. So cherem is basically the process of excommunication, which means that an individual whose behavior is ingrained in them, and they are refusing to sort of follow the accepted path, they will be excommunicated. They will no longer be allowed to get a, an aliyah in, in, in the synagogue, and people will not associate with them. The famous story, in a very short nutshell, there was an individual named Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, and he had a, an opinion about the ritual impurity about a specific oven. And consensus opinion was on the other side and said that that oven is ritually impure. He suggested that that oven is ritually pure. And the other sages said, you are incorrect. And he refused to, to bow to the opinion of the majority. Now, this is a Torah principle that we follow the opinion of the majority. Okay, So he refused. 
And there was a terribly um, dangerous uh, precedent because what would happen is each individual could decide on their own what the halacha is. And that is not a good thing for society at large. So they actually put him into cheyrem. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Akiva dressed himself in black clothing. He walked up to Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach, stood four amot, four cubits away from him, about eight feet away from him, and said to him, woe unto us that we are distanced from you. And not woe unto you that you're distanced from us, but woe unto us that we are distanced from you. Right? So what he was expressing is his regret that the behavior of Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach had led to this, to, this, uh, to this end. That's what excommunication is, that they're no longer able to function as a regular member of the Jewish society. But the idea is, is that they should refrain from that behavior and thereby leading to them becoming a full, a full functioning member of society as well, uh, again. Okay, anyway, Karate is very different. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, and so the rehabilitation is because they would want to be back, want to be full functioning, so they would change their ways. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so once again, the, the idea is, and this is true in, in, in all of the punishments in, in Judaism, right? The, the, the Torah tells us explicitly that when somebody gives someone else lashes, as soon as you finish giving them lashes for the, the punishment that they have done, they are, when you start giving them lashes, they are a rasha, they are a wicked person. As soon as you finish giving them lashes, they are your brother. What changes? What changes is that in Judaism, the punishment is supposed to be rehabilitative. It is not supposed to be, you're in a dead end now. You're going to jail for the next 10 years because you smoked marijuana three times in public over the last six years. And now you're going to jail for the next 10 years. That is not rehabilitative. That is punishment that is going to make them impossible to ever function as a member of society again. But in Judaism, the idea of the punishment, the idea of the lashes is that they shall be your full-fledged brother as soon as you finish punishing them. And that's the idea of the, of the excommunication as well. Uh, Lori, I think you had something too? Yes. Um, back earlier in the discussion, uh, it, one of the things that we have been learning um, repeatedly in Dafyomi is how intention for what somebody does makes a difference in how <coughs> they're judged and how how an action is judged and how a person is judged. And I think it comes to the same, it's part of this discussion that, you know, it belonged earlier in what we were talking about, but that <clears throat> intention is hard to determine at times, but it does make a major difference in, in the ruling of the law and in justice. Yeah, I think this is true, but I, I think it's very important to recognize that it's a very powerful tool. It's a nuclear weapon. It should not be misused. And if you have a question of, well, should we cancel this individual if we're not sure what their intention was? I, I don't think, you know, just, just to mention um, a story that came out a couple of days ago in the sports world, there was a hockey announcer, okay? And this hockey announcer, there was a, an individual mentioned that the bubble, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this concept. I'm a little bit of a sports fan, but in, in sports today, they've resumed any of the sports world with what they call a bubble. And the bubble, what it does is it has a, um, they, they're living in an individual, each, in the, each player has to live in this 
bubble where it's only, you know, 150 players total and there's only support staff involved in there and they all have to live in the same place. They're not allowed to leave the bubble. If they leave the bubble for any reason whatsoever, they have to be quarantined. They cannot join the other team, other their teammates until, until they have a negative test and a couple of days have passed by. So someone was mentioning, one of the announcers was mentioning that, hey, you know what? This bubble has been very helpful in terms of focusing that there's only one thing that they have to focus on. They have nothing else going on in their lives except for their hockey uh, agenda. And the other commentator said, and it's even better because there's no woman here that will distract them from playing hockey. Now, he immediately, the uproar and the outcry was, was immediate. Now, what's interesting is if he would have said that statement in a little bit of a more clear way, what, what he would have said is that when there are women around, oftentimes these men who are young and active and athletic young men, it will end up leading to distraction. If he would have said it in that sense, it would have been more understandable and people could have related to that a little bit more. He did not say it in a respectful way to women. And therefore, immediately, he had to resign from his position as an announcer, right? But, but I think it's important to recognize the intent of the person when they make that statement. Was it, is it intended to be a misogynistic statement or was it intended to sort of explain that when you take a bunch of young men and you take away distractions and for these young men whose focus is on hockey, oftentimes having women around is a distraction. That, is that to say that women are a distraction? I hope that's not what he intended. I don't think that's what he intended. Right? But I think what he meant is, is that it was a distraction for the specific focus that they had in mind. Right? Well, the question is, what's the intent? Well, in today's day and age, when you have social media and you have a little sound bite, a little snippet here, a little snippet there, you don't have the ability to really figure out and decipher what the intent is. That's not the goal. Right? That's not the goal at all. And, and it's dangerous. It is dangerous. I think, I think Sarah, I think you, Sarah, you wanted to say something too? Was that you who wanted to say something? No. Okay. Anybody else have anything that they want to? I okay. learned today something that uh, there were four people who were like a complete sadikim, right? And the four of them were all like kind of passive. They like Amram, uh, Ishai, uh, Binyamin. Oh, Binyamin and Kalev, Kalev, something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. And the four of them, like they were father of somebody who made something, right? Or the son of somebody who made something. So what I meant to say is that, yeah, we all make mistakes. And, but, you know, it's part of doing things. And only when you don't do anything, you, um, maybe you can die at Sadiq, but... Uh, I, I hear you. I, I, it's I don't it's know better to. What I'm saying is for the for the Jewish people, Moshe was uh, you know very important, and Amram was you know he was his father. Right, right. I, I think that is an important point to make. That that uh, and and to go back to hockey for a moment. That Wayne Gretzky <laughs> famously said, uh, "You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take." Right. Yeah, so, exactly. so if, exactly. if you never, if you don't try to accomplish in this exactly. world, you're not going to accomplish in this world. And if you try to accomplish, inevitably you might offend some people. The question is, what do you do with it once you've accomplished or once you've fallen into that trap of offending someone else? And I think from Judaism, 
as as we said before, that we're now in the month of Elul, that the Mishnah teaches us that for everything you are forgiven, if you pray to God and bring the karbanot, the sacrifices, however, a sin that you have done to a friend of yours, that you have caused them, caused them pain, there is no forgiveness from God. The only forgiveness is going to come when you ask the individual for forgiveness. It's an important message to remember. We make mistakes. We offend people. We say things that hurt other people's feelings. We do that. That, that is life. It's impossible not to do that. The question is not just what we should do as society to the individual who offended us, but the question is what should the individual who offended, what should their reaction be? Should the reaction be double down in their behavior? Or should the reaction be to say, and genuinely to say, I am sorry if I offended someone. Just to finish with one last story, and a friend of mine who is the, a CTO of a, of a decent-sized tech company around here. So there was an individual who was a, a temp at his company two years ago. On her LinkedIn profile, she still listed that she worked for this company. And she posted that um, the George Floyd awful, awful story was a conspiracy and completely faked. It was fake. Totally, everything was fake about it. So he was contacted by the local Black Lives Matter movement, and they said, there's an individual working for your company who thinks that George Floyd movement is fake. We want you to fire her. So he said, well, to be honest, she hasn't been working for us for two years now. She worked for us for two months in the summer as a temp. Um, it is what it is. And they were like, well, we hear what you're saying, but um, if you don't... Um, you know, sort of make atonement for the fact that you one time had this worker working for you, then we are going to cause you some detrimental uh, information will come to light, let's just say. So he said, okay, how do we take care of this problem? And they said, well, you're going to have to pay up, right? So that, that is not the proper attitude at all, right? That is not the proper attitude to sort of extort people for their behavior, and that that should be the way to sort of rehabilitate them through them paying a, a money, right? The, the Torah tells us both in the Torah and in the prophets, the way to achieve redemption, the way to achieve atonement is not through paying money. You don't pay blood guilt. That's not how it works, right? That's not just not how it works. You need to achieve the atonement through our actions, through our behavior, through our thought process, through our trying to come to a determination to never do that action again. And that's something which I think we should all walk away with. And that's, to me, is probably the primary lesson that we can learn from cancel culture. Cancel culture is a way of taking people and completely eliminating them from society, right? And defining them as solely as the action that they have done. In Judaism, we never believe that. In Judaism, we believe that people are always redeemable. And there's no such thing as having done something that you are no longer redeemable. But it's important to recognize the process up from that redemption. And that process is not through paying money to different societies. But the process is through coming to a recognition of what you've done wrong, repenting for what you've done wrong, and sort of um, accepting upon yourself to never do that again. And that's the process of redemption. And that's what we should all be striving for today. Rabbi, I have Thank a question. You. Matt, go ahead. Yeah, do you... Um... Do you think that Germany should stop paying the Jewish people reparations? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know how many of you are familiar, but when they initially came out with the, when they initially came out in the 1950s, uh, can everybody mute themselves? I'm having a little bit of interference now. 
uh, when they initially came out in the 1950s with the idea of reparations, there were many Jews who were strongly opposed to reparations because they felt that the idea of paying money is not the way to redeem themselves. You know, it, it's hard for me to answer that question. I, I don't know. Remember, what we're talking about is if, it, if a German person came to me personally and said to me, well, my father paid taxes that went to reparations. Do you think that that's enough? I would say, well, uh, you weren't involved in the Holocaust, right? You were not born yet. Even your father might not have been born at the time of the Holocaust. What's your attitude about Jews? What's your attitude about the state of Israel? I think that's the important question to ask an individual, right? But in terms of from the Jewish perspective, is it okay for us to take reparations? Well, if at an earlier stage in time, the people who were directly affected by, you know, let's say my grandfather who worked in labor, in German labor camps for four years in the Holocaust, for him to take some sort of reparations for the four years that, that were stolen from him where he worked obviously for free, right? <laughs> With not too many wages at all, other than the, the lashes that he would get for not working quickly enough. And for the fact that he lost all of his family members in the Holocaust, I don't think that's so unreasonable. But if, if what you're going to is, well then, how do we sort of align that with some of the other things today? Well, it's a little bit complicated. And, and I, I, I don't have a clear answer, to be honest, uh, you know, exactly how we would define that. Yeah. Okay, thanks so much for coming, everyone. Thank you, Robert. Hey, Thank you Take very care. much. Be well. Yeah, Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Shabbat Shabbat